Seth, we got a great case today. Are you ready for this? I am ready, sir. All right. So the technology we're going to talk about, it's going to involve mobile phones. It's going to involve cryptocurrency. And it's going to involve online accounts. Right. And the crime here involved three different elements. You had SIM swapping, which we'll get into. Uh, somebody gaining control of a victim's online accounts and a theft of funds, which is fraud. But here, it's not traditional funds. This is crypto, right? So a little bit different. Yep, and the criminals, it's a gang of young men, uh, ages about 17 to 26, and they call themselves the community. Yeah, not the sexiest of names. Uh, and the clincher, and we're gonna try to do this for all of our, of our episodes here, uh, that this was impossible to defend against, that even deploying the best, best practices, um, the best technology, and being the most conservative you can be. Sometimes there are elements outside of one's control, uh, but what you can do, obviously, is try to lower your risk. In this case, this was one that was impossible to defend against. Sit back and enjoy this episode of eCrime Bites. Welcome to our first episode of E-Crime Bites. I'm Keith Jones, and I'm here with my co-host, Seth Eichenholz, who's a longtime friend of mine. And uh, we're going to bring a case to you that we researched out that um, should be hopefully interesting. Uh, try to pick a, a fun case that you haven't heard of, and we will try to go through cases um, from where we can find the beginning to where we can find the end. And uh, most of the cases that we talk about will, will, will have been uh, all tried and decided. So um, the reason why is uh, we're able to piece this research together through court documents. So while we tell you this story, it might come out as a story, but it started with um, a lot of searching through the federal system. It's called the PACER system for court documents for these different cases, piecing them together so that way you can put an actual story uh, of what happened to a person that might not do this type of computer security work every single day so they can understand it. So um, this story that we picked today, I pieced it together with court documents. Um, when I couldn't find a court document or something, I did use a news article. And then you're going to see uh, this is actually one of the anomalies of our cases. We actually have social media posts from the criminals themselves. So that'll be pretty interesting, Seth. All right. So we're recording this uh, late January, 2023. I, uh, we haven't caught up in a while, Seth. So how was your winter break? Was it good? It was good. A bit of skiing, some family time, some, uh, relaxation. How about you, sir? Awesome. My, uh, oldest who's actually away at college came home and, uh, helped me with my gutters and well, <clears throat> I got to back up for this story. So last year I had some surgery on my spinal cord and it makes me numb on about three quarters of my body. So my left arm and my legs are pretty numb and it involved a lot of physical therapy and occupational therapy just to get back to do, you know, the normal stuff. And, uh, and <laughs> so last, uh, gosh, it was like October, November ish. Andrea left to go, Andrea, my wife left to go get, um, her hair done. 
and I just got a new leaf blower and it was just myself and my daughter's home and my, my older, my son was away at college and I was like, oh, this is a great time. I'm going to be able to go out there and use my new leaf blower. And my, my first level, you can actually climb out my daughter's window to get to the gutter. So I'm like, okay, I can do this, right? Even though I'm numb, I can do this. It's very so clear. <laughs> Generally, people who go out on roofs to do gutter cleaning should probably think twice about it, assuming they're in perfect health and didn't just have spinal surgery. So you might want to inform the audience, what was your state of mind figuring this was a good idea? Uh, it was, my wife wasn't home and I needed the gutters cleaned. <laughs> so, so here, so, uh, so at this point she's gone and I have to climb through my daughter's bedroom window. And I said, Charlotte, she looks at me over her, her device. I'm like, go downstairs on the porch and hand me up this leaf blower from the edge of the roof. And so I crawled out her window and I'm crawling towards the edge of the roof, the the very edge to pick the leaf blower up and immediately i'm like this is a bad idea so i'm like charlotte but you're committed right you're in you're all in anyway <laughs> i'm like charlotte take that leaf blower come back upstairs and hand it through your window to me so she did that but all the while so you know i i'm getting ready to, to blow out some gutter, some serious gutter blowing at this point and so at this point charlotte my daughter starts texting my wife andrea while she's in the chair getting her hair done it says i'm awake why is dad climbing on the roof? And my wife says, go stop him. Go outside and yell at him. He said he was cleaning the gutters. He climbed through my window. Oh, my God, stop him. He's bringing a leaf blower on the roof now. What am I supposed to do? Oh, my God, watch him. And she says, I am. So at this point, I'm on the roof, and I have my phone in my pocket, and it was a hot day, so I took off my shirt so everybody could see me without my shirt on the roof, and my phone starts blowing up in my pocket and it's just my wife saying what the fuck are you doing the girls told at you and then i have a picture of me shirtless on the roof <laughs> so it was my my uh my winter break was great because my son came home and cleaned my gutters for me and i didn't get in any trouble <laughs> yeah so it's, well, a, it's a it's a running joke around the jones household now anytime it rains i go outside i'm like oh man listen to how great those gutters are and I get to hear about how much, how stupid I was. My Andrea put an alert out. So now my neighbors, I have three neighbors around me that if they see me doing something on the roof, they text her. I kid you not. So this will be an ongoing um, bit for our audience of crazy shit Jones has done, both pre and post surgery. So stay tuned for more. Un undoubtedly, man. Undoubtedly. All right. So with that, let's just go ahead and get into our story. <clears throat> so let's get into it. When I was looking around in cases, I wondered which one to pick first. And I ran across this one case, and it was called The Community. And I said, all right, this sounds kind of odd. And I started reading it, and it was about a group of young men. Most of these a lot of these crimes are young men, but you're, I did pick some cases later on coming up that I've already pre-researched that break the mold. So it's women and, and you know older people and so forth that get involved in computer crime. So stick around for that. So in this case, it's going to be a group of young men. Their ages range anywhere from 17 to 26, and they use mobile phone technology to steal cryptocurrency from victims. So just to pause here, my understanding is the research for this was done a bit before the entire cryptocurrency uh, world collapsed in the last couple of months. 
So um, that might be a factor, or would be a factor rather, as a, maybe a different reason to not steal crypto since it's you know worth a lot less now. True, true. The uh, you know the FTX and all that kind of stuff just correct, happened correct. recently. But yeah, I researched this. Uh, it would have been uh, before the holidays in 2022. So no references to any of the new stuff. So um, why are we talking about it? So the community, they use mobile phone technology to steal this cryptocurrency. And that's electronic crime that fits squarely into what we want to talk about. How did they do this? Well, if you want to say the short technical words, it's SIM swapping. So for those in our audience who are not familiar with that, it may be worth giving a one minute overview of what exactly does that mean? And why would somebody do it? So I would argue there are, you know, innocuous, legitimate reasons to swap a SIM card and obviously the, the, the less so. So for example, if you have an old phone and all your contacts are in there and you've not backed your stuff up to the cloud, uh, you might want to swap your SIM out and save your stuff locally. That's something that might happen. Jones, you yep, have any other better examples than that? That's it right there. And every time I get a new phone, I have to swap, swap out with a new SIM and the new phone. So it's not like I take my old SIM out of my old phone and put it in my new phone, at least with the service that I have. Um, the There's a lot of reasons to swap out your SIM for just normal computer purposes. But in the sense of computer crime, you can use SIM swapping to take over someone's phone. And once you do that, you're able to see things like text messages and get voice calls. And um, with the way this technology is tied to your phone, the criminals are going to use are, are going to exploit that relationship. So why do we even care about this? You know, people may say, oh, it just it's never going to happen to me. And I just was curious. So I started looking up the research on it and I said, you know, how many how many Americans have mobile phones? And Pew Research said it was 97 percent. I was like, wow, all right. And they said the next one is 85% of them have smartphones. So that means in this case, when we're talking about SIM swapping and smartphones, we're, it's a very target-rich environment. Yes, it is a very target-rich environment. All right, so how does this work? So let's talk about the exploit itself and how you would use the same facility as just a normal person. So. As a normal person, you have you probably use many online accounts, Seth, right? And you've probably seen on there when you go to log in, it says username and password, and usually there's a line or there's a link underneath that says I forgot my password. Now, depending on the site, what happens when you click on that? Different things can occur. Sometimes they will email you to your registered email of that account some kind of link or yeah, basically it's a link. It's usually some kind of link that you click on. And then when you click on that link, you might have to go answer a few more questions about yourself. And then it'll say, all right, you know, set your password now. And then you put your new password in and your, and your new, whatever your old password was gets overwritten with what you give it. Now, it's important to note that that's not only email that services will do this over. It can also do it over SMS. Uh, yourself. Sure. Yeah, text. It can text you a link. So, um, 
you know, the, the services, the, the exact services are escaping me right now, but I can remember several services where I've had to do things where, where it'll go SMS text to your phone. Yeah, so some examples are if I want to check um, some issuance of corporate stock I might have received or maybe other kinds of financial benefits, you know, so your company will work with a bank or a financial institution. Generally, you know, they have to recognize your corporate email and then they will set you, excuse me, send you uh, a separate text, you know, to access their website and their captive portal uh, to go access your account. It's kind of a form of security, but criminals know this, right? And, and they will definitely try to exploit it to take advantage. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for you, when you're trying to get your account back, this is great. You forget, you know, you don't write, hopefully you have great security. You don't write down your password. You try to remember it. You're going to forget it. You got this facility, you click it, you get to reset your password, you get your account back. Bad for you and criminals also know that this process exists. So what they can do is they can take advantage of this process to basically reset your password and then own your account. So they don't even have to know what your password is in order to reset your password to gain access to your account. And that's part of what this um, this whole SIM swapping scheme that the community does, that's part of it. So what I try to do is explain in, a lay, in what a layman would use this facility when they forget their password is also a tool that a criminal can then go in and use against that same person and make them a victim. If you've been around computers long enough, you've probably heard of two-factor authentication. It works on two pieces of information. It's something that you know and something that you have. So something you might know is your password, right? That's what people are pretty used to when you log in. You just have your username right. and your password. The name password. of your street you grew up on, the name of your first pet, your mother's maiden name, stuff like that. And what two-factor authentication does is now it adds something that you have. So it's something like your phone. So well, More precisely, an ability to send you an additional code or something along those lines uh, or an authenticator application that you put on your mobile device to get another number to enter it. And usually that number is not you know static, it's dynamic. Absolutely. It changes every, I don't know, minute or so. If you watch it, you know, there's a little countdown timer when it gets to the end. And by the way, over. as an aside, whenever I log into my computer, it tends to me give me about nine seconds to type in my code. Then it's a little game internally. Can I type in my code without making an error in nine seconds? And I'm so <laughs> proud of myself when I get it done with like two seconds to spare. It's my mini version of Mission Impossible every day. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So um, examples of um, applications that you might have seen to do this, even if you don't know what two-factor authentication is, you may have seen these applications. They're called Google Authenticator, Duo, LastPaths Authenticator, and there's hundreds of other ones. And the way the code works is it's hard to guess and it's very hard to compute mathematically unless you know some information. Once you know that information, you can basically compute that chain over and over and over, and both sides know that information, and they're able to share it, and that's how you're uh, how you're able to authenticate. So some applications will they'll generate a code. So you might it might say, all right, to log in, give me the code on your such and such application, your your Google Authenticator or your LastPass Authenticator, and you type it in, and you're allowed in. Some other ones like Duo, it'll push you a notice. So you might log in and then all of a sudden you hear your phone go bing. And then you go over there and there's a little flag and says, do you, are you trying to log into such and such? And you say yes or no. And 
Um, if, usually if you say no, it'll hopefully start some kind of case of why is why is this authentication going to this person's phone if they're not expecting it, but not always. All right, so we talked about two-factor, and that sounds like it would be a great thing if we could put it on all our accounts. The thing is, though, a lot of this two-factor authentication will use text messages as its default or its most fallback method. So, so if two-factor authentication is considered to be the more secure methodology, how is it possible for somebody to fairly simple uh, gain access to what those two-factor items are in order to gain access to a user's account? Well, most of these sites will have a default or a fallback method of getting the authentication information to you or these secret codes that we were talking about. They're just like six-digit codes. And some of these applications, you just open them and the screen has the code on there and you just type it in. Uh, but some of these services, what they do is they say, okay, well, we're going to text your number, your mobile number on file with that code. And then you take that code and then you plug it in. Now, this is the weak link. So the text message itself to send the secret code or the, the way the message is sent to you is insecure. That's the weak link. It's not necessarily the code itself. That's the weak link. You know, the math behind it and everything is really great, and you should use two-factor authentication. But when these codes are sent over text messages, that's where this method we're about to describe with the community used to um, take advantage of their victims. It's That's what they exploited was text messages. It wasn't the more secure message. So two-factor authentication is considered the standard. How is it so easily breached? Or defeated well in a lot of cases the two-factor authentication will send you your codes over text messages and it's a text message itself that's an insecure means to share that very important secure information so with two-factor authentication there are different ways that you can take that secret message and get it to you it could be an application that you open and it's just right there or uh, a service could send you a text message and if they send you a text message with that secret code or that important information in there over an insecure channel that's a bad thing because then um, someone who has access to your phone you know it's all encrypted if someone were to uh, do a sim swap and have access to your phone all of a sudden now they have access to the code that was sent to you and they could then use it for your two-factor authentication to log in Right. No matter how secure your process is, they've already backdoored into your system. So nothing is really secure at that point. Yeah. And at this point, you say, well, I got a really strong password. There's no way that they're going to be able to get around my really, really strong password. It's 874 characters. And I type it in every time. Doesn't matter because a lot of times what the attacker can do is just go to that site, click, I forgot my password. And they get a link that goes to that user's phone, which if they're able to clone your phone using SIM swapping, they're going to get the same link and they're going to be able to set their password over top of yours and they would then own your account. And you're going to see that uh, in this case, in future cases that we've researched. So one thing I want to really, really stress here, Seth, is don't turn off two-factor authentication just because I said it can be breached this way. 
My point is, it's a really good security measure. I always turn it on when I can. The problem is, is this attack can still get around that. It can still get around two-factor authentication. So still enable it, but do know that it's not going to prevent what we're going to talk about today. Right. So what it does is it reinforces the general notion that, unfortunately, we in security know, which is sometimes our tools are uh, behind the curve of, uh, of, let's call it the jackal. And you just want to raise the bar for the criminal. If you make it way harder to attack you than it is your neighbor on the Internet, they're probably going to go after your neighbor because it's easier to go after your neighbor. So just add that one thing that makes it a little harder and, and hopefully, um, the, you know, Hopefully they will not target you first. You won't be the lowest hanging fruit out there. That's what I like to say. Got it. All right. So we've kind of talked around it a little bit um, what this attack is. And I keep saying that's what the community uh, used. Well, it is. I mean, they used it to drain millions of dollars of cryptocurrency. So this is not something theoretical that we're talking about. It's something that has been used when I researched this case, this was not the only case where this was used. This was one of hundreds of cases. And I picked this one because it was the most interesting. But it was like everywhere I turned, there was a case of doing SIM swapping and then somebody lost their cryptocurrency account. Or SIM swapping, they lost their Instagram account. Or SIM swapping, and then they lost their Twitter account. Now, this attack is not all that technical. You know, when you see on TV, you got the... the um, traditional hacker IT guy typing away with letters falling across the screen and all that kind of stuff. It's not that at all. Like this is actually a very, very simple attack. So I talked about them a little earlier, the community, which is six to nine young men. And the reason why I say six to nine is when I was going through the court documents, it was very clear who was charged and who was very active in the criminal conspiracy. And then there were three people that kind of helped them. And we'll talk about them at the end, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spoil the excitement of finding out who they are now. So the community they're scattered across the U.S. There's, um, you know, all these eight, nine different people are across the U.S. One of them is in Dublin, Ireland. They come together in chat rooms online, and they figure out ways to defraud their victims. So we're going to talk about one of the methods that they came up with to defraud their victims. It's pretty interesting. It's the reason why I found it interesting. The reason why I picked it is it's not, I can't tell you go do this and all of a sudden you'll be protected from this attack because of how it happens. And you'll, without spoiling it, you'll see at the end where it's just like, it's very, it's very, very difficult. You'll have to have insiders at companies and so forth. And it's very, very difficult at that point. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, let's look at the actual members of, uh, who makes up this quote community. We will. Um, the very first one, this is actually pretty interesting because, um, it's this very first person that we're going to talk about in our very first episode that made me choose this case because I, I, I was laughing the whole time when I was reading the, the court document, cause it's just kind of humorous on, um, how it happened. So the very first person we're going to talk about is the confidential source. We don't know who this person is, but they're involved with the community. This source lived with his mother in Canton, Michigan. Already and, a big red flag. Yeah, yeah, but don't don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with living at home. 
But in this case, for this particular person, it was really bad. See, because a cold day in Michigan in February 2018, the source's mother, who he lived with, called the police when she overheard her child on the phone pretending to be an AT&T employee. So you can imagine, if you're a police station, you get a call like that, you got to go check it out, right? So law enforcement came out, paid him a visit. When they were out there, they got consent to search her residence, which may or may not have been a good decision depending on which part of the family you're on <laughs> for this particular family. But when the police searched their residence, they found four mobile phones, which is a lot. I mean, I only have one. Found multiple SIM cards. I don't have multiple SIM cards. I lie. I have one extra multi, uh, one extra SIM card. As a computer guy, I have one extra SIM card sitting around, and that was... I do but, also would I would want to ask, aside from like if you have a corporate phone, even if you are a you know sole proprietor or business, how many phones does it have do you have until it becomes kind of sketchy? I would say four is way past that. Yeah. I mean, maybe two, two I could understand can understand for very you know, you try to keep business separate from personal, or maybe you have one that's just for a family member, you know, on an emergency, you have your own version of a bat phone. But once you're three getting beyond cheap. Or, yeah, maybe you're having an affair, what have you. But if it's more than two, I would argue it just becomes very, very hard to keep track of. Um, It reminds me of that show Supernatural where they had these, you know, hunters who would, you know, oftentimes have to imitate uh, law enforcement. So they'd have like a a box of like, you know, like 25-year-old phones. And whenever one rang, they knew this was for the FBI. That's for the CIA. That's local law enforcement. They'd be impersonating. Short of that, I can't really imagine why somebody would need more than two phones max. No, and and match that with the multiple multiple SIM cards that they found with the phones. Um, And then the files on the source's computer of potential victims around the world. So they looked at his computer and they found two shortcuts, one that says ATT plug, which is probably AT&T, and the other one is T-Mobile plug. And it's not real clear what plug means, but um, uh, maybe I'll talk about it a little later on. Let's see. What else do we have? We have messaging apps on the laptop. So this is the point where the law enforcement starts figuring out that the chat servers and people are talking to each other. So this just happened, right? It's like mom overhears child, child pretending to be AT&T. Mom calls the police, says, I suspect something. Please come over, search, find all this stuff. How do you think family to get togethers in the same household are after that? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That could not be. That could not be a good situation. And if you add to that, what comes later on, you're going <laughs> to, it just piles on top of this. You're going to see she, this is not the first time that she has to talk to police about her child. So at this point, let's talk about a SIM card. Um, I don't recall if we totally talked about it at the beginning, but I'll officially define it now. It is the subscriber identity module card. And you can think of it as just like a computer chip that's placed into a mobile phone. And that chip assigns a phone number to that phone. So you take this chip and the phone company knows this chip is supposed to belong to 555 
And once you plug that in the phone, that basically activates that phone, makes it that phone number. You can now get text messages. You can get phone calls and so forth. So a phone number is assigned to a SIM card and also can be reassigned. So as you upgrade your phone, it's just a normal practice of life. Every couple of years, you say, I want the new iPhone, whatever. Your SIM card could change. You know, it could be your phone company says, you got a new phone, here's a new um, card. That's what the company I, I go with. I get a new card every time I get a new phone. Um, other ones, they may have you keep the um, SIM card, and it's just basically the, the phone number assigned to that phone once you plug it in. Most people, they don't know they have this. Um, a lot of times, like, you know, when I get my phone, you'll get it, and it will be already plugged in. So unless you're a computer person like myself, you like to figure out where all the the doors and the things are plugged into your phone. A lot of people don't even know that this is actually plugged in there. So the SIM swapping attack that we kind of talked about and danced around a little bit, here's what it is defined. So the very first, so if, we're, if I'm going to SIM swap attack you, Seth, this is what I'm going to do. Step one, I'm going to get a SIM card from pretty much anywhere. I wondered how easy it was. I went on Amazon Pride Prime and I said, SIM card. And it gave me a bunch of them that I could buy and have here the next day. So that's easy. Let's go to step two. Now we got to take this SIM card and we got to put it into our victim's phone number. Or we got to take your phone number, Seth, and we got to attach it to my SIM card. And then I'm going to take that SIM card and I'm going to put it in another phone and I'm going to all of a sudden become you. So how do we take a phone number and we get it attached to the SIM card? And this is actually the most, probably the most technical part of this whole process. There's a bunch of different ways I've learned. Um, one is probably the most popular way is to trick a mobile phone employee. A lot of times it's just social engineering. You have a SIM card, you have a phone, you call the help number and you say, I'm Keith Jones, I'm Seth Eichenholz, and I'm trying to take my phone number, put it on the SIM card, and put it into my new phone. It's literally that easy. And then they'll probably ask you questions to pre to make sure you are who you say you are. And you would have to then know information about your victim. You know, it may be shipping address. It could be social security number, birth date, um, any other type of identifying uh, information. So that's one way you can get a phone number to a SIM card. Another way is you could just bribe a mobile phone employee and say, hey, I have the SIM card, attach this number to it for me, please. And they take their X amount of dollars and they just go in the computer system, plug away, and all of a sudden it's just done. And that's where I go back to say earlier when I said, it's hard for me to say, if you go do this, you can protect yourself from this attack. This is the point here where it's very difficult because since it's an insider at a phone company, an insider at a phone company can look up personal information about you. So they, they'll know, you know, your birth date. They're going to know your social security number. They're going to know all that stuff. Um, they're in there. There's no, presumably there's no type of protection for the right person because they got to do this for their um, job every single day, right? They got to take SIM cards and attach them to phone numbers for people every single day. So, so maybe here where it's worth pausing just to give like a one minute overview, not to add more content here, talk about the fraud triangle. Because ultimately, you know, I think sure. the point you're trying to make, um, 
is you know you can do the best you can by taking best practice approaches to factor authentication you know use encryption and what have you but ultimately you know there's always going to be something you can't control right you can't control what happens at you know if a guy pays somebody a thousand bucks or ten bucks at the at&t store you know to make an unlawful uh entry and for that guy it may be you know a victimless crime right oh yeah you know it's going to give me 50 bucks no one has to know and what's the worst that can happen right um and i think that's kind of an important thing right i mean so the fraud triangle is what um opportunity pressure and rationalization is that right i would have to look it up <laughs> sorry you don't know this i thought you were going i thought you were going with it so with I, your I didn't 15 look it up. different uh, certifications the fraud triangle states this is according to albrecht uh individuals are motivated to commit fraud when three elements come together right some kind of perceived pressure so that pressure could be financial you're getting divorced your wife is cheating on you you're cheating on your wife um some perceived opportunity right that's the big one is opportunity and then some way to rationalize the fraud the typical rationalization is it's a victimless crime so i think that's important to think about in this specific fact pattern right where you had a, a person working at the at&t store was a pretty key element yeah and in this in this case too you're going to see that it's not a victimless crime we we have victims that were they were hurt financially from it okay so that was step two uh we just assigned our sim card to our victim's phone number either by social engineering a mobile phone employee or we bribed them next our step three we're going to take that new sim card we're going to put it in our burner phone this is where we're going to receive our calls and our text messages as our victim so if i'm doing a sim swapping attack against you seth at this point where i take it take that sim who i just tricked your phone company into assigning to my SIM card, your phone number to my SIM card, plug it into my phone, and now I'm gonna get your voicemails and text messages. So we can then back up to what we were talking about earlier. You could do all those great things where you go to your accounts and say, ah, I forgot my password, and it texts you, and because it assumes that only Seth would ever have his phone, or emails you because it assumes only Seth will ever have his email, but when you have somebody's phone, you can very easily get into their email too. So there is that. So back to our story. Now, only one month later, only one month, investigators found this same child, the source, at a public library, accessing the personal data of multiple people. We don't know, at least from court documents, we don't know what those people were. We don't know if they're future victims or what. It just says personal data, but I would assume it was future victims based upon all the things that we've learned so far and will be learning about this group. So when they do a search on them at the public library, guess what they find? 40, what do they find? They find 45 <laughs> SIM cards, 45, a laptop, and then a specialized hardware device called a Trezor wallet. And I apologize if I pronounce that incorrectly, but it looks like it should be Trezor. Is that how you would pronounce it? A Trezor wallet? As in Trent Reznor, but Trezor? I don't know. It's close enough. That's what I was thinking. So what is this thing? It is basically a hardware device that you could put your cryptocurrency on. So when you own cryptocurrency, you could basically, for lack of a better term, just download it to this device, and it's on this device, and that's how you hold your currency. So then let's fast forward again. One month later, one month later, the, the authorities get a phone call. 
It's the source's mother. She says the source has another mobile phone. So guess what? They went out there. They provided uh, consent to search the residence. When they searched the residence, they found a goddamn bag of SIM cards this time <laughs> and a mobile phone. Every time they search this guy, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So now they're at a bag of SIM cards. And so they did a forensic examination of the d- devices on the source, and they found personal identifiable information. Um, listeners out there, you may have heard of PII. That's another way of saying it. So you think of things like driver's license, passports, all that kind of stuff was on him. And they found seven victims. So when we were talking about victimless crime earlier, this, this is the group I was thinking of. They found seven victims. And the first thing law enforcement did was contact those victims. And in case you're curious, the states were New York, California, North Carolina, Vermont, Michigan, Texas, and Utah. So the fact pattern here is a little bit sketchy, though. Why would they have, maybe unless they had, didn't have probable cause, arrest uh, this initial CS1, confidential source one, uh, given that there was clearly a propensity to commit crime? I mean, if someone has 45 sims sitting around in a bag, um, usually not much good is coming from that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, unless he's yeah. got all his you know, personal photo equipment on all those sims, it's possible. And your own mother has turned you in, what, now twice? And yeah. you've been visited at the public library and they pulled that stuff off you. I, I mean, I would think, I would hope it, they would be like, hey, this is a juvenile. We're trying to cut them some slack. But, you know, at this point when it's escalating and you go from like 45 SIM cards to a bag of SIM cards, at some point, some point it's got to stop. We last talked about the uh, seven victims. So let's talk about these victims uh, one by one, just generally. So victim number one. When law enforcement talked to her, she said she lost control of her mobile phone and her email account because, like I said earlier, once you have someone's phone number, you can generate those I forgot my passwords on pretty much any important account for that person and also gain access to those accounts. So when she lost control of her mobile phone, she lost control of her email account. That's a typical pattern you see with these SIM swapping attacks. After she got her... Accounts back, she said she was missing $50,000 that were stolen out of her Gemini account. And Gemini is one of the cryptocurrency exchanges out there. So when she logged in, it was basically $50,000 short once she had access to it again. Victim two, he said he lost control of his cell phone and email account. Again, that same pattern. And then was locked out of an account with $150,000 in it. And then at the point the law enforcement talked to him, he was not able to get into it, and he was unsure if the money was gone. So you got to kind of think it's probably gone. Victim three, he lost control of his cell phone and his cryptocurrency accounts. 150000 was stolen from his account, and the theft occurred around May eighteenth, two 2018. So, you know, law enforcement, they've talked to some of these victims and so forth, and then... They had another another contact with the source. This time, the source received a package from Georgia. The law enforcement had a search warrant for the package, and they opened it. And when they opened it, they found that it had SIM cards. <laughs> surprise, surprise. He had SIM cards in the package and $8,000 in cash. And then, It's normal for people to send cash, like $8,000 worth, in the mail, right? 
I can't even think of ever seeing $8,000 in cash. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. So they get I used to think one. that it was crazy when I, myself as a youngster or my kids, if they'll get like bar mitzvah money, not a bar mitzvah, like Hanukkah money of like $25 in cash sent via mail. I'm like, that's not secure at all. We have <laughs> yeah. Venmo now. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. All right, so law enforcement, they had a search warrant for the residents at this point, and they discovered, quote-unquote, and probably get used to this. When we have court documents, we'll try to read. When it's important enough to read the actual court document, we'll read it to you. And so when I, quote-unquote, things like this, this isn't just me saying this, but, quote-unquote, additional electronic equipment, government identification cards, and mailing packages. HSI agents seized approximately 200000 in stolen cryptocurrency. That's a lot. So let's pause on that. How do you, how do you seize any amount of you know value of cryptocurrency if it's a virtual currency? Well, in this particular case, they probably had access to his accounts, and if you have access to the accounts, you have access to the cryptocurrency at that point. So we're clear. Um, there's no like physical Bitcoin that you can you know bite your nope. teeth around nope. or any you know kind of. It's not like a piece of stock where you, you literally get a stock certificate. It is all virtual electronic. So it is and purely close, account based. Yeah, and I was gonna say the and the closest thing you can come to that is that Trezor wallet. So when you put right. your electronic virtual tokens on there, that's the most physical it gets. You have that wallet and you say, you know, my cryptocurrency's on here. And that's most other times it's just sitting in sort of like a you know, some kind of I don't want to say like a stock trading account, but it's kind of like that where you can purchase um, the different, you know, the different types of cryptocurrency out there. So if you want to buy a fraction of a Bitcoin, you can log into someplace like, you know, Coinbase and buy 0.5 of a Bitcoin and they would hold it for you through their service. All right. So at this point, the source consents to a law enforcement interview, which had to be fun to watch. Started spilling the beans. So. Purchase cryptocurrency usernames through the internet is what he said he did. No passwords. Don't need them. When you control their phone, you can reset the password and, you know, all you need is a username at that point. And that's why I say this, this attack is very difficult to defend against because it takes very little for the attacker to try to pull off. Uh, the source also said that they had teamed SIM cards in order to clone phone of victims, and this is the SIM swapping that we talked about earlier. Once a phone was cloned, the community, which is the group of people this source belonged to, would gain control of their email and cryptocurrency accounts immediately. Like that's the first thing that they did is went after the money in their their email. Usually, your email because your email gives you access to other accounts, and then they would go for the cryptocurrency accounts after that. Once they had access to the victim funds, they would then purchase cryptocurrencies and transfer them to other accounts that the victims didn't have access to. And then they would take that and transfer them down to the Trezor wallet that we talked about earlier. And then the source also admitted to using funds for purchases and exchanging for cash online. So you basically said so let's back up. I think it's worth kind of, since we're on a podcast here, we can't physically show it. Let's kind of give like the little like train or tree here of how this actually happened, right? So we know that the source consented to an interview and that at that point he was really spilling the beans. He was kind of explaining, you know, how this crime was committed, right? So Keith, I think it's worth taking us through 
at a fairly, you know, high point by point level of what actually happened piece by piece. I know you just did it, but let's just take a minute to make sure everyone understands this. Sure. Well, so basically, as this source would go online and, you know, using something like um, the dark web, they could buy user accounts of people at cryptocurrency exchanges. And how would you get those user accounts? Well, previous hacks or information data leaks from different places that can hold cryptocurrency might leak information out there. And what this attacker did is he went out there and he bought this information to get started with his crime. So he had, he now has purchased usernames. Right. And keep in mind, he might've bought a thousand usernames. He only needs a handful of them to actually use, you know, do what he needs to do. Yeah. If you buy a hundred and you only have one and that one is a million dollars in it, I mean, it paid for itself, right? Yeah, indeed. All right. So at this point you have a username and most people. What about think, a password? Right. Don't you need yeah. a password, Keith? Well, if we know the phone that the person would use to. So if they have a phone number, let's say I have your phone number and I think, oh, well, Seth's going to hook this to all his accounts. Once I have that, I would then go do a SIM swapping attack against you. So I would go bribe your phone company's people and say, here, for $1,000, would you take this SIM card and swap Seth's number to it? And they would say, sure. And I would now have access to your text messages and your voice calls. So at that point, I would then go to email addresses that I know that you would be part of. I, you know, I would do all this reconnaissance up front so I know that Seth has a certain you know, email account out there. I'll just make one up. Let's just say like a Hotmail account. I would then say, all right, I'm going to go focus on this Hotmail account. And I don't even know if Hotmail exists anymore. That's why I used them. But I would focus on this Hotmail account. And even though I don't have a password for it, a lot of times because I've, you would associate that phone number with that Hotmail account, you could then go to Hotmail and say, I forgot my password. And sometimes you can get it, depending on the service, it also sent to your text message or another email address that you might already own. You with me so far, Seth? He shook his head. Yes. I know our listeners can't see that. <laughs> yes. With you. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, he's with me. So once at that point I've cloned your phone and at this point I should be able to get into your email addresses because I've generated that. I forgot my password. I've sent it to a password that only I know now. And now I start going to your cryptocurrency account. You know, we'll just say FTX because they're in the news. I go to FTX account and because I don't know the password, um, also not a big deal as the attacker because I use the same darn attack, which is I forgot my password. Hopefully it gets sent to my email account or my phone. And then once they send that link, I then send, set your password to something only I know. And now I have access to all your funds. Once I have access to your funds, I can then go buy cryptocurrency with them. If the, if it's just say dollars in a, if it's just dollars in a, in an account, or if they're something like Bitcoin, I can just take that Bitcoin. I could transfer it to an account that I already own that you don't have access to. And now all of a sudden I have all the money out of your cryptocurrency account through a SIM swapping attack. And it becomes hard to trace too. It does, but you're going to be surprised where you catch the criminals in this. It's actually very interesting. So, all right, so we finished up with the source. The, the source continued to admit more things. He admitted that he would communicate with approximately eight individuals online. 
using chat servers and services of Discord and Telegram. He also admitted to defrauding victims since December 2016. So if I remember correctly, we said 2018 on one of those cases. So we're talking at least two years here. It's been a while. Now, most importantly, the source gave up a name, and he gave up Ricky Hanschumacher. That's it for part one. Please join us for part two for the conclusion of this case. Well, great case, um, Keith. I had fun with this one. Um, I'll let you go out in terms of uh, how to, you know, how to start a conversation with our very new podcast. Sure thing. So right now we're probably only talking to both of our wi <laughs> our wives that are listening to this, but maybe in the future, if somebody listens back in our first, our first episode and want to know how to reach us, here's some ways. First, we have a website. It's just eCrimeBytes, bytes spelled the computer way, B-Y-T-E-S. So it's just E-C-R-I-M-E-B-Y-T-E-S.com. You can hit us on email. It's ecrimebytes at gmail.com. Oh, and I should back up. On that website up in the upper top, uh, you can actually get to all these other um, ways or other social media accounts and so forth. So if you want to go to one spot to get all these things that I'm talking about, go to the website. Uh, if you're on Facebook, we have a Facebook page. Just search for ecrimebytes. Um, it just should show up in there. There was nothing that even looked remotely like it, so it should show up right away. And then Twitter, we have a Twitter account. It's eCrimeBytes, and I should mention that we also do have a Macedon account. Um, I do. It's a little bit longer than eCrimeBytes, but eCrimeBytes is in the name, and it's at um, uh, I forget which server off the, off the top of my head. But if you go off to uh, ecrimebytes.com and you click at the top there's a Macedon link and it'll take it right there too so if you don't if you're not going to be a Twitter user you have an alternative to reach us in Macedon too so we try to be reachable to everybody and with that uh, we thank you for listening to our first episode and hopefully you will join us for our second which will be just as crazy as the first thanks bye Thank thanks all